Welcome to the Diversity Workshop. My name is Lynn. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, hey, everybody. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic devices be turned off now. We remind you that this session is being taped. All speakers must sign the release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. The format for this session is as follows. We will have three speakers who will share for 20 minutes each, followed by three-minute open pitches until the end of the session. The topic for this session is diversity. All our nuggets have value. <laughs> This is really cute. (laughs) The following is a reading from the pamphlet, A Common Solution, Diversity and Recovery. Let's see here. Read this page. As Overeaters Anonymous grows, our fellowship becomes more diverse. The AA Big Book observes, we are people who normally would not mix. That's in Alcoholics Anonymous, 4th edition, page 17. Yet, mix we do under the wisdom of Tradition 1 that reminds us personal recovery depends upon OA unity. We share a common problem of compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors, and together we seek a common solution, recovery. Our stories disclose that within our diversities, sometimes because of them and sometimes despite them, we have found a solution that works for us, practicing the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous, By working together, we find unity in diversity and gain recovery. Our first speaker is Richard from Sacramento. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. I'm Richard. I'm a real compulsive overeater. Good to see everyone, and I did sign the release. You're not going to check my tax records with that, are you? Okay. Um, Well, I want to thank Michelle for uh, asking me to to events coordinator to speak, and Lynn for uh, facilitating the session. And as Lynn just said, this this session on diversity is basically what diversity means in program it means we are all we are people who normally would not mix as it says in the big book and our personal recovery depends upon OA unity and it says further that we find unity in diversity and gain recovery from working together so that's the focus of our uh, of this session and what I'm going to share a little bit about is I'm going to qualify I'm going to share oh five ten minutes about my own story and then I'm going to share how in program, how I've learned to cherish and embrace diversity, what diversity means to me in terms of being in recovery and being mature in recovery. And then I'm going to uh, finish by going through some of the traditions and steps that directly speak to diversity. And um, my story, at first I thought the topic of diversity would be 
having overcome significant diversity challenges in terms of my life, and that in many respects my life is not like that. Um, I came from a working class family, not a middle class family, but a working class family in the Bay Area. I've heard many people from the Bay Area share today. It brings back a lot of memories of growing up in uh, Newark and Fremont and my relatives living in Oakland, San Francisco and the like. Um, uh, I did grow up in a neighborhood in Newark which is predominantly Hispanic, It's uh, and it still is. It's uh, on the way out towards the Dumbarton Bridge near the end of Newark off of Thornton Avenue, and it still to this day is very much a Hispanic neighborhood there. We were a working-class family that lived there. Many of our neighbors were Japanese. There were a lot of Asians living in that part of the Bay Area, and I attended a working-class school, uh, tough, reasonably tough neighborhood, maybe not like Detroit or Oakland, but, but definitely an urban working-class neighborhood. And um, so in terms of my disease and what, my, what it was like before and after, um, I mean, I think I was conceived a compulsive overeater. I was born a compulsive overeater. Um, I've been a compulsive overeater as long as I can remember. Um, I have memories back to before I could walk, I remember even crawling to the refrigerator as a, as a toddler, opening it up, grabbing, grabbing a pie of some sort, you know, falling on the floor and, and eating it, and that was before I was able to walk. So I was a compulsive overeater from the beginning. Uh, I always ate compulsively. Uh, and uh, I've now been in program for 25 years. Um, October will be my 25th anniversary. Uh, I came in in October 1987. Um, I had 14 years of clean abstinence, the first 14 years. For me, that means that I was able to wear the clothes I wore in 1987. If they hadn't worn out, I could wear the same clothes in uh, 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 2002, in 2001. So for that, you know, anything that didn't wear out, I could still wear. That's a miracle because it was never like that before. Uh, I then had a seven and a half year relapse uh, from 2001 through 2008, and it was basically my whole family of origin passing away. Um, uh, I come from a small family of origin, myself, my sister, the, just the two parents, and I'm not married and I don't have kids. And like in the play last night, uh, the whole play touched me, but the song about having no friends, no family, being alone, I mean, that was my relapse, you know, so that aspect of diversity, uh, uh, I can relate to that. Um, for also, first of all, being a, a male in OA, there's generally less men in OA. For me, uh, being orphaned, you know, losing my whole family, not having my own family of, uh, you know, wife or kids, and then losing my whole family, and uh, my childhood background growing up in a, in a pretty much a working class family. I also, um, when I went to college, I went to a private college, University of Pacific in Stockton, and you know I, got, I was able to get a, a scholarship, state scholarship to go there. It, that was a period in my life where there were basically the diversity in Stockton, well at UOP there wasn't much diversity, but uh, 
Uh, at UOP, the diversity was there were the people who were rich and there were the people who were super rich or royal. <laughs> that was the diversity. And, and I was a working class person who got a state scholarship going to a place like that. So I think you can look at diversity. Um, many, of us, many of us grow and become adults. We have special challenges. I have fewer of them than, than a lot of people. We all have... There's the image of a sapling pine tree and for no good reason a boulder rolling down and rolling onto the side of it and it growing up crooked because, because of an evil twist in events and it could never grow straight and having that sort of challenge but yet growing but having to grow up crooked. And I think there are many of us who suffer with unique circumstances that force us to adapt and grow up in a different way. Um, I had fewer of those than many people do. I had some of those. But what I clearly have is the disease of compulsive overeating, which for me um, was just a nexus of uh, basically of depression, anxiety, and that always becoming hunger, uh, feeling abandoned, feeling alone. Uh, I suffered much physical abuse as a child on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of physical abuse. My family was about a 9, with 10 being the worst, so it was pretty bad. Uh, uh, my mother was my physical abuser. Um, and so in terms of diversity, I came from a, a family that never got divorced, but from a family which uh, was not very nurturing and was really one of the parents was at pretty much the negative end as a person. The other parent was okay, and that's probably maybe why I'm standing here and functioning and, you know, uh, you know, was, there were people in my family who were okay, but uh, there was a lot of abuse, so that's diversity. You know, some of us don't come from particularly good families. And I've suffered from anxiety and depression much of my life, and uh, Again, that's one of my own challenges. And again, for me, the uh, disease of compulsive overeating is integral to the anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, whatever it is. That's what I'm currently diagnosed as having is post-traumatic stress disorder. I, the insurance company pays for it, so I trust that that's what I've got. So, um, um, so... So uh, for me, I've had my own str struggles of uniqueness, both real uniqueness, trying to fit in in the world, and of course the disease, the degree to which I'm truly different and unique from others exists, but the degree to which I think I'm unique and alone is very pervasive, and I think all of us in this room feel that. Uh, and I think diversity is an important topic for all of us in that respect, because I think I, I think probably most of us feel we're alone, we're abandoned. There's the illusion of aloneness, abandonment, that there aren't people there for us, that we're not being nurtured, and food is a captive audience. You know, food, food won't reject us, food won't walk away, food won't beat us up, and as long, you know, if we have whatever dollars it takes to buy it, we can get it any time we want it. So... Um, so, like I said, I've been in OA 25 years. Just one, one background. My uh, first, uh, 
first diet was in college. It was pre-therapy, pre-recovery. Um, I was about 70 pounds overweight when I first went to college. Um, my first semester, I got four Ds and an incomplete because um, I I went. I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to show up for classes. Uh, didn't want to study. Uh, got a letter that uh, my scholarship was going to be taken away if my grades didn't improve. And so I had three options: either start going to classes and studying the second semester to stay in college, uh, go back and get a working class job, or uh, or uh, go in the military. And that was during the Vietnam War. So I figured college was the best of the three options. So um, so I did. And my second year, I improved and. I um, uh, I went on my first successful diet my second year in college, and I did did uh, I did okay in school the, the rest of the time there. But I found a diet pill my second year in college, um, and the diet pill was uh, LSD, <laughs> and that was my first diet was taking LSD about four to five days a week, and I could not eat. This is my disease. I could not eat. Uh, I could basically fast the entire day. I could fast four days in a row taking that, w- with the exception of two beers at night to go to, go to sleep, and that's all I would need. for. Uh, and that diet was working for about a year <laughs> until I started, when I'd go to class or go back to my apartment, I had to start stepping over the snakes. I mean, I, and I got that, you know, Nobody else seems to be worried about these snakes. You know, no, it doesn't bother anybody else, and none of the snakes ever bit me either. At that time, I realized I needed to do it a different way. But um, anyway, so I've been in program for 25 years, and um, you know, the part of the big book that this meeting is about is we are people who would normally not mix, and it goes on to say that uh, we're like survivors of a shipwreck who feel total gratitude for surviving and we have a common bond because we have survived the shipwreck only for us in OA and for us who work the spiritual program it's a euphoria that doesn't wear off and I think that's the core of what this pamphlet says about diversity is we all have our struggles for whatever reason we've gotten this disease and what we found here is is a solution to our problems and it's a common solution and it's by working together and it's by connecting with each other and um, what I get out of all that the steps and traditions is that you know this disease the antidote to this disease is all we all want to be around other people we want to hear from other people and be heard by other people that's why everybody's in this audience is you, you we want to be around other people we want to hear other people we all need nurturance from other people. That's why everyone's at this convention. And this is a WE program. And um, the seven and a half year relapse I had, and basically my struggle on a daily basis to re- re- retain recovery is this. You know, the, the disease and relapse is isolation. It is lack of acceptance. Uh, that, and, and diversity is the opposite. It's lack of acceptance is that I don't have time or the tolerance for you. I can't listen to you. I need your help, but I don't have time to give you help. 
and your views are wrong. And the program is a big antidote. In fact, working steps five through nine is a way of learning that, you know, really other people aren't wrong. It's what's in my head that's wrong. And um, so a lot of this program, it's admitting that I'm totally powerless over food. And this program is all about anonymity. You know, we place principles before personalities. Uh, and we do service, which means that we're willing to help other people. And we sponsor other people, which means we're being willing to be of use. And my disease is one where I need to give up fear, self-flagellation, and recrimination. I need to stop beating myself up. And uh, basically, when I reach a point where I can accept myself, then I reach a point where I can accept other people. Because um, the disease really is all about old tapes, internal fears, lack of acceptance. And, you know, if, if I come to a space where I like myself, I accept myself, then I can accept other people. It's, uh, then it does become principles before personalities. And I think a lot of our steps and traditions just relate so strongly um, for this uh, session I mean personal recovery depends upon OA unity but I take a lot out of tradition 3 too the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively and for me that's always been the biggest tradition in this fellowship because I'm powerless over food on a daily basis it's a choice and I'm glad there's a place that will accept me that doesn't require anything in addition to just having a desire. And I've also been taught that um, the traditions of OA don't just apply to OA itself. It doesn't apply just to what I do in here. It applies to what I do in all of my life. Because Step 12 talks about having had a spiritual recovery as a result of this program we carried this message to fellow compulsive overeaters, but even more, we practice this principle in all of our affairs. So what we do in the steps and traditions, it's the tolerance that we're supposed to have of all people, places, and things. And again, what Tradition 3 says, and again, I apply that to all of my life, you know, the only requirement to be a member of the human race is, is to be a human being or the desire to be a human being. And that's something that I need to do in this program and, and also do in life in general. And again, Tradition 5, each group has but one primary purpose, which is to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. And of course, obviously, Tradition 10, OA has no position on outside issues. Uh, and Tradition 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And that's what this whole program is about, and that's the ultimate spiritual anonymity. So, um, the, or the ultimate spiritual diversity is placing principles before personalities and carrying the message. And again, that's I learned to do that here. I do it here, but... I take that, I do that in my life in general. So it's embracing diversity. It's having the time to listen to other people. It's having the willingness to help other people. It's uh, being open to what's happening in the world. It's being accepting of other people. It's basically um, a new spiritual practice I'm beginning to learn, or a new spiritual method. It's basically... 
you know, showing attentiveness to other people, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowance of other people. It's doing all those things. And by, if I'm doing that for others, I'm doing that for myself. And if I'm willing to tolerate my own disease and my own feelings, I can tolerate other people's feelings and their opinions as well. So um, I'm just so grateful to be able to speak here, and uh, thanks a lot. Our second speaker, our second speaker is April from Berkeley. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Hi, I'm April. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, April. Um, so I just came from uh, a meeting for gay and lesbians, and um, which is in this hidden room down a dark corridor. <laughs> I couldn't find it. I, someone had to lead me there. And the other people who, uh, who are meeting in that, taking turns in that room are young people, anorexics and bulimics. And um, I'm just saying that in terms of diversity in OA comes in all stripes. So when I saw the name of this panel, I wasn't sure, well, does that mean we're going to have bulimics and 100 I mean, it could be anything. So I'm just um, happy to be here and to be of service. Hopefully I have something to say of value. And if not, just share it with your sponsor. Um, so... When I came to OA 11 years ago and 50 pounds heavier, I um, was in a tail. My life was unmanageable. I was in a tailspin. Uh, I had, was in a marriage of about approximately 20 years. Um, when I got married, I knew that I was a lesbian, but I was hoping that I would change. I thought, well, maybe I'm really bisexual. Um, and it was it was it was hard for me to really come to terms with that. And thinking back to puberty, um, there was a lot of shame that I carried around because I knew I was different. I knew I had different urges and interests than the other girls my age, and um, it, I was literally in the closet reading magazines um, or the garage, as it were. But still. Um, and so I had a lot of shame. I had a lot of fear that I would be found out. And um, I, I generally have a lot of fear that I'll be found out that I'm a phony. I'm not, you know, a good enough person in OA. I'm not a good enough person in my job, et cetera, et cetera. One day they'll fire me, and it's 22 and a half years later, and they haven't done it yet. But anyway, um, so not only was I married, but uh, for whatever reason, a woman came into my life, and I started up an affair with her. And that just increased my anxiety and excitement and anxiety and excitement, and I couldn't control those emotions, and so I just kept eating. Now, I was a compulsive overeater from the get-go. I'd been up and down in my weight, but this was a trigger that was just really, it wasn't just a trigger, it was the cannon, okay? So I could not 
stop eating to save my life. And so not only was I uh, trying to hide an affair, but I was making myself miserable eating over it. And I told myself, well, if I could just maintain my weight, I'd be happy. In those days, being a large woman was something okay. And, you know, sometimes something to be proud about. So I'll just be big and beautiful. But unfortunately, I couldn't stop gaining weight. I couldn't stop eating. And that's what brought me to the rooms. But I continued my affair. And it was hard for me to sit in the rooms when people were talking about honesty and inventories and um, step five and admitting your wrongs and making amends. And those things were freaking me out. But my desperation over the food and my weight kept me in the seats. And you kept me in the seats because I saw that this program was working for you. And that's what kept me here no matter what else and whoever else I was. And when I um, did my fifth step, I was like, okay, I have a straight sponsor. And I'm going to not only admit to her that I'm having an affair for the first time I'm going to make this admission, but that I'm having an affair with a woman. And I did not know how this was going to go over, but my recovery depended on it. So I did it, um, and I'm still here, and so is she. So I learned acceptance in that moment, um, acceptance uh, of who I am, not just that as it's okay, no matter you know who it is I'm sleeping with, it's not necessarily okay that I'm sleeping with someone when I'm married to someone else, but... I am human, and just like everyone else, I am fallible. And I learned that, and that helped keep me in the rooms. And it helped keep me abstinent as well. Um, but up until then, I was carrying a lot of that shame was still with me and self-centered fear. Uh, not only was I fearful that my husband might find out about my affair, but my boss would too because I picked somebody whom I was supervising to have an affair with. <laughs> and that um, really made things complicated. Plus the fact that she was alcoholic and all sorts of other things. Well, that really put me in a tailspin. My life just was going down the tubes. And finally, and people would say, well, maybe you should tell your boss what's going on. And I'd go, no, I can't, no. That's worse than death. And finally, I had no choice. And I did. And my boss said, well, you don't have any worries with me because I met my husband when I was married and we were working and together and now blah, blah, blah. So... Again, I found out, you know, I'm not the only human being on the earth. And so over and over again, I have found here in OA um, acceptance. Acceptance um, for each other and, more importantly, is accepting myself, learning how to accept myself for who I am. And that includes that I have certain talents and gifts to give, as well as I'm fallible, I'm not perfect, and I never will be, as my sponsor likes to remind me. <clears throat> In terms of um, what happened, um, 
I, um, t- it took me five years of being absent and in recovery and working the steps before I actually left my marriage and came out. Um, there was a lot of anxiety leading up to that. I was, um, even though unhappy, um, which I discovered after I got abstinent, <laughs> um, that um, I cared for this person. And I was afraid that, well, I would be betraying him and his love. And I realized through um, program that I am not responsible for another person's happiness, which means I can't make him happy if I stay. I can't make him happy if I leave. I can only be responsible for my own happiness, and I'm not going to be happy if I stay where I am. So with the help of the fellowship and my higher power, I was able to take the scariest step of my life, walk through the door, and um, I came through the door, and I'm okay. And I've taken a few more risks in my life since then. Um, Before I left, I told myself I was going to make amends to my husband because I knew that there was this, um, there was the possibility that I could use this as an excuse. I could just walk out and say, you know what, honey, I'm gay and goodbye and never have to make an amends. Well, I couldn't do that. I had too much integrity and too much belief in this program and and commitment to my own absence to be able to to walk out like that. So that was my threshold. And so I did, and there was no big scene. I didn't admit to everything because we only make amends as long as it doesn't cause harm to another person. And I didn't see any reason to bring up something that would be probably more hurtful than anything. So I didn't. Leaving was hurtful enough. Um, so, in terms of diversity, um, I know that in some fellowships or some intergroups, there are gay, lesbian members who have meetings. In my fellowship, in our intergroup in the East Bay, we don't. And I have um, not found that to be an issue. I, when I go to San Francisco, I think, oh, cool, that's great. I'm going to go visit one of those meetings. That's great. Uh, but um, I just find that we come with all of our own unique stories, but what we have in common is that we are recovering from compulsive overeating, and as Richard reminded us with the uh, third tradition, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. And I learned at some point in program that that tradition, which was developed in AA, came as a result of the fact that there was a gay man who was an alcoholic and wanted to be a part of the group. And the wisdom of some of the elders in that fellowship said, the only requirement for membership. And so I say, well, right on to that. Um, now, um, I thought that I would um, share uh, one section of the big book that I've had to read over and over, and it was very critical in the course of my going through this transition and taking these steps in my life, 
And that begins on page 69. Now, about sex. We reviewed our own conduct, where we had been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate. Whom had we hurt? Did we arouse jealousy, suspicion? Were we at fault? And, you know, that was something that I had to look at very seriously, not just in terms of my marriage, but other people. Having an affair with someone when you're married to someone is not a cool thing. It's not very respectful. And so I've really had to clean up my act. And um, what helped me is the quote, uh, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We were reminded that our sex powers were God-given. Yes. So I didn't have to be ashamed anymore for who I was. And I could focus on my behavior with other people, not who I chose to sleep with and love. And I want to say that in terms of working this program, my sponsor is straight. I have sponsees who are straight. I even have friends who are straight. <laughs> and um, the only, in fact, people ask me to sponsor them. I don't know if they're gay or straight, and it only kind of comes out later. You know, that's how um, secondary in my mind that issue is. But on the other hand, I also know that I'm a silent minority. Um, I can walk in the rooms, and you're just going to accept me as a compulsive overeater. But not everybody um, has that um, has that blessing, so to speak. People can feel uncomfortable just wondering how will they be accepted. Just like I did when I thought, what's going to happen when I open my mouth and talk about my partner? And um, I was really lucky. Early in my, uh, pro in my recovery, two lesbians in my fellowship got married. Well, it wasn't legal then, but um, it's the same thing to me because it proved that, once again, it was really just about compulsive overeating and recovery. And it's not like, oh, they're the gay people. <laughs> it's more like there's someone with recovery. There's someone you can be of service with. And that's really what it's all about. And if my story helps you, um, whether you're gay or straight, I am more than welcome to share it with you. So um, thank you again for letting me be of service. And that's it. Our third speaker is Cindy from Oakland. Yay! Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Cindy. Hi, and um, because I told the boutique, I got this at the boutique. I'm wearing it for the tape. It's a uh, light blue jacket, and they told me to give a plug. So there's really nice stuff there, only eight bucks. So go, and I have another outfit, but it was too hot to wear in the room because I knew I'd be nervous. So um, go check it out. All right. So um, I read what, well, I want to thank Michelle Kinda 
for asking me to be a speaker. Actually, after she asked me, I called my sponsor, who's white, and said, that's racist. So you know how I'm thinking. Um, so I did read what they said. And, um, to, and mentioning Tradition One is all about unity, I just started reading what Tradition One was about. And it really came down to, for me, like what keeps me com- what has kept me coming back when I sometimes look out in the room and I don't see a lot of people who reflect my pigmentation. And what it was is that food kicked my butt. That's the bottom line. Um, I can say on my second trip to OA, uh, part of my story, so, well, let me qualify. Um, I have been abstinent since August 15th, 2007. And uh, I have been coming back the third, this is my third time in OA, but I've been coming back regularly since 2001. And when I say coming back regularly, uh, I started going to like one meeting a month. <laughs> and then it became two and then four. And then I met some people who were not African-American who um, basically through their, what I'm now learning and what is part of tradition one is um, a deep welcome that I didn't even know, this will make me cry, it was a deep welcome that I didn't even know I was getting when I was getting it. And that's what kept me coming back. I did, like I said, I didn't get abstinent though until 2007. So um, what's kept me coming back is food kicked my butt. That's the bottom line. Um, I, the first time I came to OA, I was 12. I grew up in Southern California, um, working class family. I, um, and because it was in Southern California, there were youth programs and so or youth OA. And so I did go to a youth OA meeting on a boat in Marina del Rey. Uh, I believe there were three kids and a man who um, was really thin and he had a big blow up picture of himself overweight in the skinny version and he was running. There were only three kids and they were not, they were not black. Um, however, I should also say I grew up in Santa Monica, so Santa Monica as a city never had a large, it's not a black town. Um, so I'm kind of used to being in towns where I'm not number one, however, or not number one or not the majority. Um, however, Monday through Friday, I was um, in that kind of environment, but on Saturday and Sunday, it was all black, all African-American all the time, all day, because it was family and church where most Americans segregate. And, um, and growing up that way, there were things that you definitely told people of your own hue and things you told people of a different hue. And what in OA, from the first time, even walking in as a youth, that division had to drop. Because even walking in as a youth, what I didn't know, because I didn't know, I mean, I kind of knew I was a compulsive reader, but I didn't know to the level to start getting it. To do this program, I can't have those divisions because I can't stay abstinent. And but I didn't, it took a long time. So I came in at 12, but I left in three months because I got busy at 12. Because <laughs> you don't get it, you know? Then I came back at, um, when I was going on 20, 20 to, I was turning 20 and I was, um, it was a year before I turned 21. Yeah, the, the 21 follows 20. Um, but when I turned 20, I was suicidal and I wrote a note to God that said that if you don't fix me, I'm gonna kill myself. And um, so there was the newfangled program in OA, the How or Gracie program, and I went to that um, a, the, a summer or uh, something like that. It was a school break, I remember, from college. And so I went there 
did that plan and um, did lose weight and um, left after five years. And one of the things that I let myself leave, there were tons, but one of the things I said is these people are trying to make me white. I can't eat nothing I want to eat. They're just trying to make me white. Okay. So, um, and I never told my sponsor, right? So I didn't even trust her to say that. And, it, and I may have told one person that, but it was just like, it, it, I didn't know that that's a thing that the disease used to take me out as well. So um, I, luck, well, I didn't luckily, but I left the rooms and, um, you know, on that whole thing of tomorrow will be different, and it wasn't. And, um, and I say, tell this story. It was in Sacramento when I um, left the rooms, and it was, um, I was on 16th and Broadway at Tower, and I had just seen Paris is Burning, so there's all these black drag queens and transsexuals in that movie who are just beautiful and fabulous, and I was eating um, the gray sheep plan, and I was thin, but I didn't think I was that beautiful or that fabulous, and I thought, where the freak are these people trying to make me do? And um, you know what, I'm gonna go out and eat, and tomorrow it'll be different, and I walked out of the Tower movie theater and walked over to, um, uh, it's the hamburger joint, Willie's hamburger joint. It had a double chili cheeseburger and chili cheese fries, and it took nine years for me to come back with 140-pound weight gain. So by the time I came back the second time, it was like I had already tried everything and did everything to, um, to, uh, to get it. And one of the things I even tried is because I had said these people are trying to make me white, um, while I was in Sacramento, I did join a African-American vegetarian raw foodist club, the Nut and Berries folks. And so they started making like soul food with raw food and all these other things. And I found that even at those meetings, when they're eating raw nuts and dates and um, a sweet potato pie made out of like... Uh, sweet potatoes and pineapple and all this, but it's raw, that I would still have the biggest plate and I would still want more, where they would eat their little bird amount and be really happy and talk about the spiritual enlightenment they were having. And I'm thinking, I am not getting it. And, um, and you know, and being all soulful. So it wasn't working. And like I said, I gained a bunch of weight. So by the time I got, when I, when I st started coming back, I still had a lot of mistrust, but I was just so, I was beat to crap, and I didn't know it. I was just beat to crap. And, um, and so a really great man and his wife pretty much came up to me and just said hello, and that's all it took. But I didn't know that that's what it took. And then they just started letting me go to things with them. They invited me to um, Unity Day in, uh, in the Bay Area. They would invite me out to dinner so I could watch how real compulsive overeaters ate, and they were abstaining. I didn't believe them because when I was coming back to the room, I mean, first of all, I didn't really necessarily want to be there. I didn't want to be a compulsive overeater. I, what the first meeting I went back to in Sacramento, this guy was talking, and I remember raising my hand going, well, how do you know you're a compulsive overeater? Mind you, I'd been to OA twice, but I still asked that question. And he said, well, if you're asking that question and you're in these rooms, you're probably a compulsive overeater. I didn't want to hear that. And um, so, so it's, it's just I came back because this is the only place that fully accepted me with, with, that just fully accepted me and I didn't have to play those games that sometimes I still feel like I have to play at work. I do work in a field that um, is social justice and um, 
economics and rights and all that stuff. And um, that's just not a game I get to play here and talk about. I mean, I can talk about it here, but I don't. That's an out, it's a little bit of an outside issue because the bottom line is, which my sponsor has to beat into my head, is that the most important thing I do every day is abstain. And I don't want it to be. I, um, I did have big dreams. I'm, I'm from a family that has problems, and we are working class. Um, and I get, I want to say, and I might say alcoholic, but my sponsor's here, so I have to say, and alcoholic. There is alcoholism in my family. We suffer from the disease of alcoholism, and it comes out as compulsive overeaters, drug addicts, and alcoholics. And, um, and sometimes there's mental illness as well. So uh, there, I, I had a dream once. <laughs> I had a sister who has not raised any of her children, and my parents have raised her kids, and um, that's happened to me uh, before I got in the program the second time, or to us as a family. And uh, one of my dreams was that I would um, raise these three kids, quit college, raise the kids, buckle down, and then get an award from Essence Magazine, which is a black women's magazine for being such a strong black woman for raising these wonderful kids. That never happened, but my point is to have that kind of goal that's lofty and then be told, no, your biggest thing is one day at a time is to abstain, is, was a large jump. To, um, the other thing that also has come up um, when, when my sponsor and I were talking about maybe perhaps I've been a compulsive reader all my life uh, so another thing in my story on that and kind of relates to um, I was three and I ate a whole fried chicken and um, not in one sitting but over the course of the day so my mom fried it in the morning and by the time it was dinner time the whole thing was gone and that's not normal so um, I'm saying that because there was a discussion about maybe perhaps I might have. I believe, like Richard, I was born with compulsive eating, overeating, but maybe perhaps I also had good reasons to maybe sustain some of that, being from a family with alcoholism. Um, anyway, so my sponsor was trying to suggest perhaps that was going on, and I was like, no, you're, you're, you don't understand. She's white, okay? And I was like, you don't understand. This is really affecting black families, and it's black people, and I don't, I can't listen to that. I, I need to talk to a black person. This is crazy. Which it, it does help. I'm not saying that doesn't help. It does. But I'm so grateful that I could say those kind of things and have that kind of discussion with someone who would say, no, it's alcoholism. It's still the disease. The disease has no. It, it has no color, it has no ethnicity, and that's one of the great things that binds us together, because we're just all in this together, period. And, um, and more so in here do I learn that you're my brother, you're my sister, and that um, there's a lot of hope um, for all of us. And recently at an Oakland meeting, we were talking about, um, I, well, one of the traditions, and I think it was, the, it, I believe it was tradition one, but it seems like this happened only a few weeks ago, so it's hard for me. We, anyway. So the person said what I really took to heart was that diversity is one of the highest forms of spirituality. And, and, and I just carry that. So um, not sure what else to share about. I will share that um, it's also through reading the stories in the big book that have really helped with that. Um, 
And I particularly like Jim's story. He's the African-American that started the first African-American meeting. And what, uh, he didn't start it, but he was one of the people who helped start it. And what I really like is that, you know, at the end of it, the guy who 12-stepped him is a white man. And this is 19, I assume the story came in the book in 1955, but Jim had been drinking since 1935, and I suspect that he probably got sober in the 40s. And during that time, there was big segregation. And um, for someone who didn't look like him to 12-step him and then attend a meeting, and what it sounds like, I've just taken background assuming, in an African-American neighborhood, um, is a big deal. That just immediately says that there's something else going on here. And um, so, so when I read that, that also helped to just kind of start to get over my, my stuff. Um, I mean, and, and there's not that I haven't, no. I haven't met anyone in the meetings who has made me feel less than anything but a compulsive reader. They remind me I am. And that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, I can also say I, growing up, because I do have family members who um, experienced, who grew up in the Midwest and experienced a lot of racism, my, fam my parents particularly and grandparents and stuff, um, that there are stories of things that are difficult. And one thing for me is um, uh, we would travel back to East St. Louis where my folks are from. And to me, St. Louis was the most segregated town I had ever been in. Um, I had very low expectations of what also was available there in terms of vegetables and food. I thought the whole city was a barbecue state with, um, with um, collard greens with bacon and, and pork fat in it. And um, when I first started getting abstinent this time around, I ended up going to a family reunion. Both of my parents are from there and um, had to be abstinent at a family reunion. And my sponsor suggested that I go to a meeting. This was like, are you kidding me? Um, but I knew I needed to go. But I just didn't think, I, I didn't know what I'd expect. To be honest, I had visions of some people sitting in a room with a white hood. And when I walked in, I thought they would walk out. I really did. And um, I told my family that I was going to these meetings. And when I told them where they were, they were looking at me kind of funny. Because the city is still, do there, the meetings aren't in the main city of St. Louis. They're in outskirts and suburbs. And so it was. It was a leap of faith to do that. And I did go to the meeting, and I walked in, and there was nothing but love. It was nothing but love. So like that whole thing about who's going to be there, what people are going to look about, think about me, and OA, it's the only place that I don't really come in with that. It's the only place I don't come in with that. And not only that, I told them that I really thought the whole state was barbecue state and, um, and uh, bacon and all that. And they said, oh, well, it's not. And here's where you can get some grilled chicken. And here's where you can get a non-boiled vegetable. Like they actually had a Safeway that had fresh fruit. I mean, I just didn't think that existed. So, but again, it was coming from a youth idea up to now. But the fact is... I, I only got over my fears by doing it because I needed to to stay alive. I mean, that's to stay alive. That's, I, don't, I don't do anything in here because I'm like such a really wonderful human being. It's because I need to do it to stay alive. And um, one other thing is uh, in our own OA, 12 and 12, in step forward, there's a question about like diversity. Are we bigoted? Have we ever denied anyone fair treatment because of race, religion, politics, gender, or disability, 
do we tell ethnic racist or sexist jokes? And the fact is, I do tell those jokes sometimes. And, um, and it's not right. And I actually um, like an outside writer who says that if people talk, do those jokes in her house, she, lets, she makes them leave. And um, I was like, oh, she would never be my friend, you know? <laughs> I, but I'm human and I'm getting better. If not, are we afraid to say what we don't enjoy, such humor? And, and it takes a lot to also stand up to that, too, and when that's happening across um, ethnic lines. and Because um, now, living in the Bay Area, it's very diverse racially, ethnically, politically, in all kinds of ways. And there people within your own little group say their own things and people not in the group and it, it's just it's a I'm glad to be here where I can learn to let other people just be how they are without having to raise the fighting flag or power to the people and um, just be so that's it thanks The meeting is now open for three-minute pitches. I have the speaker release form. We ask that you sign it before you share. Let's see here. We ask that you limit your share to three minutes and confine your share to your experience, strength, and hope on the topic discussed today. This session will end at 5.15. So if everybody who would like to share would like to go ahead and line up on this side of the room, you can come on up anytime. Oh, I just wanted to thank the speakers. I really got so much out of it. I, um, I didn't know what to expect, really. I just, uh, I love Richard, and so I just follow Richard, you know, big fan club. But um, I asked him, I said, Richard, well, I, I'm going to crosstalk a little bit, but I can do that. <laughs> no, he said, uh, he said, I, oh, we were sitting just talking for a second. I said, what are you going to talk on? And he said, uh, diversity. I said, oh, I don't, I'm just so brilliant. I go, because you're a man. <laughs> and he said, and he said uh, no, because I'm different than every human being here. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I get that. Well, I'm Hispanic. You know, I don't think about it that much. I'm a woman. I'm married. I'm uh, Catholic. I'm 5'3". All of these things. I have labels all over. Tons, tons, tons. More and more and more. I'm a B positive blood type. I mean, but really, nothing. I don't even know if that's true. Nothing, nothing is more important than this. I'm a compulsive overeater. It's all I need to tell you. I get you and you get me. Whatever division between us it's not my problem I get you I've never been anywhere anywhere and I do do all those things that I just said you know I have tamales at Christmas and anyway I'm not giving them up you'll take them out of my cold dead hands <laughs> but all of those things are still who I am but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because you get me I could go up to any one of you and even if I don't even like you that much you're going to help me You've got to. <laughs> or you'll get fat. <laughs> and I will help you. 
That's that's what I love. Whatever the diversity is, and I think it's a really important topic. I really think it's interesting, and it is. It, it, it's, I loved hearing what everybody had to share, but I just wanted to tell you, you know, when I came in and someone said, I love you, I would be in the back of the room going, they don't even know me. How could they say they love me? But of course... It's true. I love you. I, I can say that. You you get me. I get you. And I think that's the most powerful thing in the whole world. Thank you. Debbie, compulsive old reader. Hey, I'm also part of the Richard fan club here. <laughs> um, I have a lot of things that I grew up that I felt different. I was taller than most people. My mom is uh, like a whole head taller than her two sisters, and I'm the same height as her. And most women I know are medium size. And in high school, I was a large size. That was I wasn't overweight at the time. Um, now my size is gigantic, you know, but. Um, I just felt different being so tall. And then also I grew up vegetarian, and I got constant flack from that. Now it's like almost recommended by Dr. Oz, you know, <laughs> twice a, um, uh, they say not to eat meat more than twice a week, oh, Dr. Oz, but anyway. Um, so I'm still a vegetarian, and I don't get flack anymore except from my relatives. My son and my nephew, who grew up vegetarian, um, now both eat meat, and so they're always trying to get me to eat meat. It's like get flack from my own family, you know. Um, um, another thing that I'm different is I, growing up, I had no energy, and um, seemed like everyone else around me had energy, and I didn't have any. And I think that um, my mother's water broke early, and she didn't go to the doctor to, to have me, and so. When I came out, she said I was really dark, so I must have been, you know, devoid of some oxygen or something. And um, I'm still a regular person, but I just don't have the energy. And it seemed like one time when my husband and I went on a hike with the church group, he was the very first one trying to show the younger ones that he was tough, you know. <laughs> and I was the very last one. And I remember going hiking at Yosemite and putting, uh, putting out maximum effort and my husband said to me this before we got married that I wasn't even trying and it wasn't true I was giving it everything I had and it, it's just not enough you know so um, it's frustrating and I've had diabetes the last five years and so it seems like my energy goes down more every year down 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 and um, it's frustrating you know so it's made me desperate enough to give up gluten I gave up gluten like um, 12 weeks ago. Um, no wheat, no sugar, and I've given up dairy, no white rice, no potatoes, and um, my health is starting to turn around, but um, with the diabetes, it's probably never gonna be what it was before, and that was the energy was so low then, you know, so anytime I'm sick or have another problem, it's like I have less energy, it's like golly, barely have any at all, and, in anything that makes it less, you know. So I feel like um, I can never get woman of the year or any of that stuff, you know, because 
Um, my intelligence is pretty high, but my my physical has never matched the intellectual. So it's like I could do so much with my mind, but my body just like doesn't cooperate. So I, I feel like I I can never be woman of the year. You know. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I am bilingual Spanish, and uh, but not Latina. And I've uh, been in program a really long time and started a meeting in Spanish probably 25 years ago. Babysat the meeting for about a year with, um, there was this woman from Nicaragua, and she was Al-Anon, and she wanted away, so we sat through it, and nothing happened. It was a big dud. So... Uh, that was 25 years ago, and then last year, um, I'm from San Francisco, there were some people really interested in starting a Spanish group again, so I was all excited, yay, there were 15 people who said they spoke Spanish, we were really excited, and then um, it's about a year and a half later, and it's me and one person sitting in the room, so... And I know there's 15 people who speak Spanish who are active OA members, and I don't understand that. I don't understand if you're bilingual why you would not do service at this level. It's so needed. Um, Mexico is the highest uh, country with diabetes per capita. Um, That has to do with the GMO corn problem that we sent down there. And... um, I mean, it's a problem, and so what happens is people come, they come to this meeting, uh, monolingual Spanish, they're not, they don't speak English, and a lot of them are young women who came in like I did, I came in at 25, I was really, didn't want to be fat, that's exactly how they are, really young Latinas who don't want to be fat, and they come and go, and then the other sort of set of people who come are um, middle-aged women who have diabetes. And um, so I, I don't know what to do. I pray about it. I get pissed. You know, like, where are these other 15 people who said they spoke Spanish? But um, I also, my husband is Latino, and he, um, well, he has other 12-step stuff, but he really wants to be in, in OA. And what he has told me, uh, you know, he comes, he goes, he said, people don't talk to me because they're afraid of me. You know, he's Latino. He looks Latino. And he says, all these women are afraid of me. And, I mean, I just want to, like, spread the message. If you see a newcomer, no matter who they are, like, say hi. You know, say hi. Say hi. What's your name? Where are you from? Um, because it's this is tough. You know, it's really tough. And then the whole other issue around it is the food, the culture, you know, the tamales, like somebody said. Like, there's, there's, there's issues. And... Um, like though it's bad enough there's all those issues but to have like sort of what i think is fear of the other and and bigotry and problems um there's a pamphlet that floats around it's like a it's like a three folded three thing and it's got the demographics of oa and it says that um oa is basically female white like we could change that thanks
Hi, I'm Meg. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Meg. Hi. I want to thank everybody who spoke. It's been very moving for me. Great. Uh, not just these people, but everybody who's come up. Um, it, it really reminded me that, you know, I've always felt different. I mean, it could be my curly hair. It could be my um, I'm tall. Um, it could be I'm shy. I'm Jewish. Um, it could be anything. But I am a white woman, and, uh, and I'm, you know, in the older category, and, and there's lots of us in this program. Uh, it makes me feel very welcome. And um, it was the love and acceptance that I felt at the first meeting. Oh, so my first meeting was a big book study meeting. There were very few people there. There was a nun. She was middle-aged. Yeah, she was probably in her 60s like I am now. Um, I think there was another woman in her 60s. And then there was this guy who was uh, younger, and he was skinny. And he said, this is my third meeting of the day, and I'm going to go to two more. And this was a noon meeting. (laughs) So I thought, and then they were reading the big book. Uh, The secretary of the meeting was dressed in clothes from the 50s, and we're reading the big book from the 30s, and I thought, I've gone into time warp. (laughs) So, um, but there was something there, and I really felt accepted, um, and and the nun took me aside, and she said, try other meetings, you know, see what you like, find something that you really like that fits you, and um, I did, and I've been here for 22 years, and I'm really grateful. Saved my life. Thanks. Hi, I'm Chava, compulsive overeater, uh, anorexic and bulimic. Um, um, Thank you to all the speakers. And um, my mind always wants to separate me. You know, I'm different, and I don't belong, and it's really dangerous for me. Um, One of the things that was a big difference in my mind when I got here was that I'm a heroin addict, as opposed to you people who only abuse food. <laughs> and, you know, and so what, how could you understand me? And, um, of course, there are other addicts in this program. But um, I actually, you know, after my relapse, <laughs> I, I remember going to my first meeting after a relapse, and it's like, you know, it's like I admitted I was powerless over food and it was going to, you know, kill me. And suddenly... Suddenly, you looked all different. You know, it's like suddenly I belonged here, and um, you know. And I realized about heroin. I've said this a million times, though, that you know, like a jar of my favorite binge food is legal, so I can go to Safeway to get it, and I don't have to sell my body to um, obtain it. You know, and heroin just happens to be illegal, so I sell my, sold my body. And if if my binge food was um, was illegal, then I'd be selling my body for a jar of it. Um, And um, I got abstinent then, and it was like right before Hanukkah, and um, I just, you know, like fried foods are not on my food plan, and um, I don't know if you know potato latkes, potato pancakes, or I don't know if we're supposed to say food, but and, you know, and then my brain again goes to town, like, you know, like, well, what kind of anti-Semitic outfit is this if I can't have, like, 
I can't have potato pancakes. Unfortunately, God, um, in God's wisdom, had me, I mean, had a Jewish sponsor who wasn't going to buy that. And, um, you know, and so I, I did not have that food, you know, and I also, I remember praying about it and having a dream where, you know, everyone else at the Hanukkah party was going off doing whatever they were doing, and I was going back to having to have more potato pancakes. So, um, so I haven't had potato pancakes, and I'm, I'm still um, part of my faith, you know. They haven't kicked me out. Um, um, and I also remember one time I, I was at a, a, a spiritual gathering, and um, afterwards they, hand, they handed me um, this sweet that was it's like on Passover. There's this particular sweet, and and usually when people, I don't even, like, take it. I just say, no, thank you. But I took it, you know, and I was sort of, like, walking around with it, you know. And finally, I put it on the altar. And, you know, and what I got was that, you know, I had nothing. I, I wasn't after this food. I was just missing my family. So, um, anyway, thank you. Hi, my name is Cheryl Compostel Volveeder. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, I love this diversity. Thank you, panel, for just really sharing your honesty. Thank you so much. I live in Sacramento, and um, I'm usually the only black person there. But I am so good. I am so happy about it because um, I'm from the islands of Trinidad and Tobago, and is you damn Yankees that I worry about. <laughs> so anyway, I grew up in New York City, and um, actually I feel comfortable actually with more whites than I do blacks because growing up in, in the heart of New York City in the Bronx, I had an accent, and I would get beat up all the time with the, with the blacks. And when I was bused, from my um, where I lived to the city to the schools, it was all predominantly white, and I was accepted there. So I feel more comfortable with more whites than I do blacks, actually, um, and that's because growing and growing up. Um, but even when I'm in in the rooms with predominantly white women, I feel good because I'm putting flavor in there. And food tastes good with flavor. So I, I like that. Um, but I love um, the saying principle before personality because it's not the color that I have a problem with. It's the personality more so and the character defects. Um, but um, I just have to say, I, I love OA. I love the warmth and love. I, I do attend other 12-step program, but this program, I feel so much love here. And um, I love being the flavor. Thank you. So thanks a lot. Mary, abstinent compulsive overeater. Hi, Mary. 
Hi, and I've had the privilege of being at World Service for four years and being on the Literature Committee. And I don't know if you're aware of the diversity pamphlet, The Common Solution, published in 2011. There's 29 stories. And we were part of the committee to read the categories of age, classism, ethnic, language, and to get 29 stories that are all OA people. It's absolutely the best pamphlet. And what I heard today, uh, I, I don't know how to express, but it, it, the humanity that I hear today expressed and the forgiveness and the tolerance, it's really good for me. And now I'm on the committee for the Brown Book being revised. And we have the criteria of diversity. So we have a spectrum of people with all the different parts of us so that we are not women that look like other people like myself, that we have this common denominator and that everybody is welcome because there are many, many people. Uh, there is the, uh, the uh, I don't know what you call it, almost a pamphlet on a strong meeting. And there's the question, there's, we have a policy, yeah, the checklist of a strong meeting. So we're rewriting the checklist on diversity because all diversity has meant is if you're anorexic or if you're bulimic or if you're over or under. But that only speaks to one facet of diversity. So when meetings are in Sacramento and there's just a flavor, that doesn't reflect the population of Sacramento. So as a strong meeting, what are we doing in those cultures? Are we going to the prisons? Are we going to the clubhouses? Where are we going to pass the message of OA? Are we going into the hospitals? You know, what are we doing to make sure that the next generation will have a place to come to? Because when my generation leaves, and there's lots of us, who is there to carry the banner to ha make sure that everybody is welcome? that the traditions are followed. I mean, not the, what I mean is that there are people uh, when this population uh, can spread. So just looking at a strong meeting, at a strong convention, we have a strong convention. We have one-third of brand-new people who have never been to a convention. How about that? And my time is up. Thank you. That's all the time we have for sharing. It is now time to close this session. Let's thank our speakers one more time and all who have done service for this session. Good job. Thank you. Thank you to our timekeeper, Susie, also. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tapes table to order copies of this session or any other sessions. All workshops and main speaker events are being recorded and are available on CD as and as electric download, electronic downloads. And we'll close. Please join hands as we close with the third step prayer.